Father, we wait in your presence even now to look to your word. We ask that you would mold us and shape us. Bring us more fully into the life of Jesus for the glory of your name. And then may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you here. And good morning to everyone watching via the live stream as well. We're looking this morning to our gospel reading from Mark chapter 8. We'll dive right in. This is a passage which is familiar to many of us, or its corresponding passages either in Matthew 16 or Luke 8 are familiar, where Jesus has this interaction with his disciples and makes this profound statement about taking up one's cross. The setting for all of this is that Jesus, with ever-increasing resolution and purpose, is heading toward Jerusalem. He does this knowing quite clearly what awaits him there. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 affirms this, where we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face on going toward Jerusalem and not wavering from one side or the, to one side or the other. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19 tells us this. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. And then in Mark 10, so all three of the synoptic gospels affirming this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And then again, he says, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog and kill him. After three days, he will rise. Despite these repeated explanations and warnings, the disciples are missing it. Or perhaps they're not wanting to hear what Jesus is saying. Maybe it's because it is just still way too far outside of their mental boxes, it's too hard for them to get their heads around what Jesus is saying. Or maybe it's because it's just too horrible and frightening to think about. But our gospel reading this morning clearly shows that Jesus knew the necessity of what was coming. And it also shows that Jesus knew it was critical that the disciples begin to grasp not only what this meant for him, but also the implications for their lives, what it meant for them as disciples in the days and the years to come. Implications, please note, implications that are true not only for those first disciples, but also implications which remain true for every genuine disciple of Jesus in every generation, and that includes you and me. 
and going up to Jerusalem, we see Jesus walking in obedience to the Father, walking in obedience to all that must come to pass. Jesus knew what he must do. He knew that this was the only way by which his purposes for coming to earth would be fully accomplished. The Old Testament prophets had pointed to this. Jesus knew this was God's plan, God's plan to redeem us, and that it had been promised and foretold from the beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 3.15, right after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, casting all of humanity into sin and rebellion. Genesis 3.15, a verse that over the years, while I'm here, you will hear me use quite often because it is such a pivotal verse in the book of Genesis, tells us this, prophetically speaking of Jesus, I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, referring to the Messiah, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus was resolute. Nothing was going to stop him from walking in obedience to his father. Nothing was going to stop him from obeying and accomplishing his mission. In the midst of this scene, in his resolve and determination, Jesus' resolve and determination, Peter becomes indignant and says, no, this will never happen. Imagine it, Peter. Peter rebuking Jesus, the eternal son of God. Yet I think we can often be too hard on Peter because there is an important example for us here, I believe. Have any of us ever tried to tell God what he should or should not do in a particular situation? I will put my hand up right away because I, am, I stand before you guilty. And I suspect pretty much anyone in this room can stand before one another here guilty as well. Or have you tried to tell him, tell God what he could or could not do with us in a particular situation? You know, my call to ministry, I'll make it very succinct here. Um, my call to vocational ministry was a struggle with these things. Well, God, I want to do it this way. And God, I don't want to go that educational track. I want to go this educational track and, and back and forth and back and forth. And I, I've shared that, I think, before. It's been a lot of years ago now. But... I was on, as I've shared in the past as well, a mission trip to Bolivia, and it was not related to the mission trip. And I was in my room one morning praying before we went to the job site. It was a construction trip to build a um, church school outside of Santa Cruz, Bolivia. And God spoke very clearly to me. Um, it was one of those times I didn't hear an audible voice, but it was as clear and as clarion of a word from the Lord as I've ever heard. And there were three things. I was called to vocational ministry, I was to prepare to go to seminary, and if I didn't do it then, meaning shortly after I got back getting things moving, I was never going to do it. And I came back with a completely different perspective and resolve and got finally beyond, as God spoke so clearly to me, this, well, God, yeah, I want to do this, or I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it my way. In so many respects, we're often not much different than Peter, are we? What does Peter, excuse me, what does Jesus say to Peter? Basically, Jesus says to Peter, get out of my way. I will not allow you to tempt me away from God's very will for me, God's purpose for me coming to earth. And then the clincher, and this is not paraphrased, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, 
but on the things of man. Ouch. But that should speak to each of us as well because when we set our minds on the things of man or this earth or temporal perspectives rather than on the things of God, it will always lead to temporal and earthly and carnal decisions. What an incredible, supreme example here Jesus gives us of obedience to God. In his remark to Peter, Jesus really cuts to the chase and strikes at the very heart of what it means to trust him as Savior and be the disciple, a disciple of Jesus. It is about obedience to the will of God. Being a disciple of Jesus is about obeying God. And then Jesus uses this scenario to launch into instruction in this very regard. Look at verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here we have it. The very essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus boiled down to three short phrases. What I would call the disciples' threefold call. The first phrase, deny himself or deny herself. This is the starting point for entering into a life as a disciple of Jesus. Sometimes people, often people distort what Jesus means by self-denial here, turning it into something legalistic, meaning earning your salvation. We talked about this a little bit last Sunday with the start of Lent. And by that, I mean turning self-denial into a way of earning our salvation rather than recognizing that it's by God's grace and grace alone. Or we turn it into earning brownie points, somehow favor with God as if, as if somehow if we have more good stuff than bad stuff and the good outweighs the bad, then we're okay with God. And that is not the way the gospel works. That's not at all what Jesus means here. The essence of the self-denial that Jesus talks about is surrender. Surrender. It's just that simple. No longer what I want, no longer what you want, but full surrender to God. We have a lot of military or retired military folk here in the church the example of surrender in the military means that you surrender. You place yourself under the control of someone else. You place yourself under the complete control of others. But unlike military or worldly surrender, to surrender to God, to be captured by Jesus is a wonderful and beautiful and glorious thing. To experience the fullness of his love and the fullness of his grace. But that surrender, being captured by Jesus, requires a disowning of somebody. And that somebody is me in my case, and that somebody is you in your case. How could, biblically, a disciple of Jesus be anything less than someone who has disowned themselves, their will, their way, for his way, their will, for God's will. 
That's the example, brothers and sisters, that Jesus not only teaches, but he gives us in himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Being like Jesus, growing in Christ-likeness, mandates, mandates nothing less than full surrender to him. Surrender. Surrender to God being the God of our lives and no longer trying to be God for ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20 reminds us where St. Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Secondly, take up his cross. This is a really another very forceful and poignant way for Jesus to say that to be his disciple begins with denying yourself. It's another way to say the same thing. And we lose the force of Jesus' words here in the 21st century. We lose a sense of the force of what Jesus is saying. People often misuse this scripture, talking about some small or trivial issue in life. Well, I guess... That's my cross to bear. That is not at all. That is not at all, brothers and sisters, what Jesus is saying here. It's also important to note that Jesus is not calling us as his disciples to take up his cross, the cross of Christ. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross. Let her take up her cross. That means me taking up my cross, and it means you taking up your cross. In the ancient world, as we've talked about at other times, crucifixion was a form of execution reserved only for the lowest classes of society and for slaves. To speak of crucifixion in conversation among people from the higher levels of society was considered taboo. It was considered off-color and crude. It was considered inappropriate, bad manners, and bad taste even to mention it. One line from Cicero says this, let the very name of the cross be far away not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts. It was a slave's punishment. And when someone was going to be executed by crucifixion, they were flogged to the point of bleeding and far beyond that in many instances, even as is the case with our Lord. And then they were forced to carry the cross beam or horizontal portion of the cross to the place of execution. That cross beam was usually tied to them, so they had to carry it. And when people in that day saw someone carrying a cross, it could mean only one thing. That person was going to die. They were not going to be seen alive again. 
When Jesus calls you and me to take up our cross, it means completely dying to ourselves, to our will, our plan, our way of doing things. And this is the only way to have true life, to try to continue serving others, doing things our, excuse me, to try to continue serving ourselves, doing things our way will always inevitably lead to death, spiritual death. But to lose our lives, to die to ourselves is the gateway to life, not just in this world, but the gateway to eternal life through Jesus. Look at verses 35 through 36. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In Galatians 2.20, the apostle Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The only way to enter into true life is surrender, to, deny our, to die to self, to deny oneself, to take up your cross, to take up my cross. And then third, follow me, follow Jesus. It's interesting that in the original language, both deny himself, track with me here, and take up his cross are both in the past tense. It indicates that they are the starting place. And you and I cannot enter into the life of God apart from these essential steps by God's grace. In contrast, follow me is in the present tense. So again, deny himself, take up his cross are in the past tense. Follow me is in the present tense. That's because following Jesus is something we do as his disciples and which we must continue to do day by day. Jesus doesn't just suggest that we follow him. He is God the Son. He speaks with the authority of heaven and he commands us, follow me. And following him means taking hold of a new calling, a calling by God's grace and power to live in obedience to God and it means in this calling, letting go of a whole lot of stuff and letting go of self. Jesus doesn't promise us ease. He doesn't promise us that all of our troubles in this world are going away. But he does promise us life, not just here, but for all of eternity. He promises us forgiveness. He promises us joy. He promises us living relationship with God Almighty. It will cost you and me, but look at what is gained. And to be unwilling to surrender in the end will cost everything. Jesus' call to each of us to take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow him is indeed to every single one of us. And he sends this call, he issues this call to us not as a heavenly taskmaster, but out of great love 
Because of what he has accomplished for us on the cross. Because of how much he loves us. Because he has our best interest, both here and for all of eternity at heart. And he has, he says this because God has reserved his best for those who belong to him. God alone, do you hear this? God alone has our best interest in mind. There was a worship song that was popular in the 90s. I'm dating myself. And it's not one that was sung maybe as prevalently, prevalently as some others. But it's one that was a favorite of mine. And the words are very fitting. I'd like to read them to you. It's entitled or called Jesus Lover of My Soul by Paul Oakley. And the chorus goes like this. Jesus love, or the verse, excuse me. Jesus lover of my soul, all consuming fire is in your gaze. Jesus, I want you to know I will follow you all my days. For no one else in history is like you, and history itself belongs to you. Alpha and Omega, you have loved me, and I will spend eternity with you. And then the chorus. It's all about you, Jesus, and all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. It's not about me, as if you should do things my way. You alone are God, and I surrender to your ways. I'd like to conclude with a prayer that is also very fitting as we consider these profound words of our Lord. It's actually written in the 16th century by St. Ignatius of Loyola. The title in Latin is Suchipe Domine, which means receive or take, Lord. So let us bow our heads in prayer. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. All that I have and possess, you have given all to me. To you, O Lord, I return it all. All is yours. Dispose of it wholly according to your will. Give me your love and your grace, for this is sufficient for me. Amen.